Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one South Atlantic, generally from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who sat in Burlington in Greater Ontario. I'm visiting my kids and today I'm joined by former Labour MP Chris Williamson, the Derby North MP, who was suspended in a row over anti-Semitism. And he sat in a... Where, where exactly are you, Chris? I'm in my constituency office in Derby. So up in the Midlands there, the North Midlands right. in, in England. In a week that has seen Parliament in the UK call an election for December the 12th, we asked Chris Williamson if his political career is over. One of Jeremy Corbyn's most ardent admirers, it's not the first time Chris Williamson has sparked outrage for dismissing claims of anti-Semitism in the party. But his comments in a video in which he said Labour had been too apologetic in its approach proved too much for many, even in the end his leader. You know, the party that's done more to stand up to racism is now being demonised as a racist, bigoted party. We've backed off far too much. We've given too much ground. We've been too apologetic. There was applause, but the timing couldn't have been worse. Coming a week after nine MPs resigned from the Labour Party, partly in protest at Jeremy Corbyn's handling of anti-Semitism. Margaret Hodge, one of many who wrote in protest, demanding he be suspended. Just imagine if he'd said that about the Labour Party's gone too far in fighting racism against black and ethnic minority people or against disabled people or gay people. That would have been intolerable. But soon, Tom Watson, the deputy leader, was also demanding action. I formally request that Chris Williamson has the Labour whip removed from him, he wrote, and or is suspended from the Labour Party. Five hours later, Labour announced that Chris Williamson had indeed been suspended. Ian Austin said it was long overdue. I think there should be no place for somebody like Chris Williamson with the views he holds and the, the way he's gone. He's gone out of his way to cause offence for years uh, to Jewish people. 
But a party member who shared a platform at the event with Chris Williamson defended applauding his remarks. I think the party needs to root out anti-Semitism wherever it is, wherever it arises. But it mustn't be used as a political tool so we can undermine it. Jeremy Corbyn may have been reluctant to suspend Mr Williamson, but it seems he was left with no choice. Chris, why are many people in the Labour Party upset with you? Well, many people aren't upset with me, actually. And uh, can I just correct you about a political career? I don't see being a member of Parliament as a career or a job. I see it as a privilege. And um, I've made myself incredibly popular, I think, with the Parliamentary Labour Party by pointing that out, that Labour members of Parliament or should be servants to the Labour movement, to the wider general public, the Labour supporters who put us in there. And our role is to serve the people and to, what I'd like to see, democratise the the economy so that people have a greater stake in society, a greater stake in the economy, which is the fifth biggest economy in the world. And yet we have 14 million people living in poverty in Great Britain. So there are some people in the Labour Party who are hostile Mm -hmm. to me. They tend to be predominantly the sort of, uh, if you like, the establishment, the elites in the party. And last year, and I've continued to uh, promote democracy, but last year in particular, I embarked upon what was referred to as a democracy roadshow, and I toured the country, not just myself, with, with other... Oh, no, Chris, but, but before, before, we, before we go into your roadshow, before we go into your roadshow, which is incredibly valid, why do people say that you've brought the Labour Party in, into disrepute, that you've been too apologetic to people who are anti-Semitic and have controversial views about uh, Jewish people? Why? Well, Let, let's deal with let's well, deal with that because okay, I fully appreciate, Chris. One second, I fully appreciate that there is more yeah. to you than just these allegations of anti-Semitism. Yeah. But you're not a member of the Labour Party because of them, so we have to address those first. Well, I'm suspended from the Labour Party at the moment, um, and it's an administrative suspension. So I do still see myself as a very much a member of the Labour movement. I still see myself as a Labour. MP, and I'm hoping that I will be. So, how does that make you feel? You're a very, you're a very proud Labour member. How do you then feel that many people who are Labour members through and through revile you at the moment? Well, you keep saying many members, and it's not many members. The overwhelming majority of grassroots Labour Party members, and the Labour Party is its grassroots members. It's not the elites in Parliament. It's not the bureaucrats at work in the party's head office or in the regional offices of the Labour Party. They should be. And I see themselves, and I see myself as a servant of the party. But can I just say, though, the the reason why I was talking about the democracy issue is the two Mm -hmm. things are linked. The reason why I've been smeared is precisely because I've been promoting greater accountability. People who claim to be Democrats seem to have, some of them anyway, an objection to uh, being democratically accountable to the members who actually do all the hard work, knocking on doors and putting out leaflets, as it were, uh, to actually get us into Parliament in the first place. That's why I've been targeted. That's why I've been smeared. And it is a very, very small number of people in the party. They have a big platform. They have access to the mainstream media and so on, and they use that remorselessly. Let's also remember, of course, that the vast majority, uh, well, probably the entirety, actually, of the mainstream media is hostile to a socialist Labour government. They're hostile to socialism. They're the mouthpiece for the neoliberal establishment. And of course, they're going to do everything they can to smear and undermine uh, the, the Labour Party. And the other thing I would just say is I've been mm-hmm. taught, I've been smeared. But when you boil it down, the accusations against me are twofold. Firstly, 
I've defended the Labour Party's reputation as an anti-racist party. It is an anti-racist party. I stand by that defence of the party. Throughout its history, it's stood up to racism. The Labour Party, the Labour movement, was standing shoulder to shoulder with the Jewish community against Oswald Mosley's black shirts in the Battle of Cable Street in the late 1930s. Uh, it was the backbone of the anti-Nazi League in the 1970s, fighting the rise of the fascist National Front. I was an active member of the anti-Nazi League. And can I say, in the 1970s, I was an apprentice bricklayer. And I regularly uh, challenged the casual racism that we encountered on building sites. And I've got to say, I nearly got attacked and beaten up on more than a few occasions for my troubles at work and indeed on the streets and confronting the, uh, the Nazis and the fascists that were on the rise at that point in time. I've spent my life fighting race and I'll take no lectures from any of these arrogant elites who are seeking to smear and undermine my good record and reputation. And then the other thing that I've been uh, attacked for is for defending people who've been falsely accused, as I've been falsely accused. And I believe that solidarity is inalienable. Solidarity isn't something you just pick up and put down when it's convenient and, and put it down when it's not convenient. Solidarity is something that you, that you show consistently. And I've stood up for people, people who are Jewish members of the Labour Party, left-wing Jewish members of the Labour movement, have been targeted. People like Jackie Walker, a black Jewish woman, spent her life fighting racism, has been a victim of grotesque racism when she was a little girl had the windows put through in her home by vile racists. Her parents were ex expelled from the United States of America for un-American activities, for being involved in the civil rights movement. And there's a... There's so, a, Chris, there's a, I'm Chris, I, 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 I don't... I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that you don't have a, uh, a record of being anti-racist, but these allegations of anti-Semitism are things which have come about in the last two or three years. And you talked about defending specific, specifically a Jewish MP, but can well, you not... No, she's not the only one. I mean, there's a number of people that have been targeted. But, 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 but Chris, 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 can you not then understand why when people hear that you were celebrating the resignation of MP Joan Ryan, that somewhat sticks in their craw and it then goes, seems to fly directly contrary to what you then just said. You're caught on that momentum tape celebrating her resignation. Well, I'm, I'm absolutely pleased that she has gone, absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to make any apologies for that. She was a right-wing MP who'd spent the last few years completely undermining the leadership of the Labour Party, disrespecting the democratic will of the overwhelming majority of party members, and indeed the, the wishes of the vast majority of Labour supporters and indeed people in the in the country. So, of course, somebody who doesn't really subscribe to Labour's values, I'm not going to actually say that. So that's a, a sad day when somebody like that leaves the, the Labour Party. So, and no, then, I'm, I'm but then with that, that, that in no way, shape or form, an indication but, of, of being bigoted in any way, shape or form. The bigotry but is then, But Chris, also then when you said that, then you've also then said that allegations of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party are proxy wars and bullshit. Well, it's very clear that the Labour Party is an anti-racist party. Even the statistics that have been shown to demonstrate that the number of people who have been accused of anti-Semitism, let's remember mm -hmm. that many of the accusations are false accusations, uh, and many of the accusations which have been levelled have been against 
to people who are not even members of the Labour Party. But when you actually break it down, it's about three hundredths of one percent of the Labour Party membership. Three hundredths of one percent. Let's get this into some sort of context. In, but in we have a situation, Labour, Chris. We have we, we have yeah, a situation. Racism and, and bigotry regrettably exists in society. And the Labour Party is a great bulwark against that. The Labour Party now is a mass movement in. It's hardly surprising then that some people have you know those residual views. But the way to tackle it isn't by demonizing people, isn't by kicking people out of the Labour Party, it's through political education. But let's remember that the Labour Party is an anti-racist party, is a bulwark against bigotry and racism. The Labour Party has delivered virtually all of the progressive changes we've ever been brought about in this country. And then to try and demonize the party as some sort of a bigoted institution is utterly, grotesquely absurd and outrageous. Chris, Chris, I think it's utterly grotesque and absurd. But one thing that you've been complicit in is almost by making anti-Semitism seem like it's um, a legitimate strain within the Labour Party. I've never ever said that. I've always made it very No, no, no. I, but, but what I've said, but, 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 but I think that because, because you haven't been fulsome with your apologies, um, no, it, you know, people on the right, people on the right have been then been able to say, look at the Labour Party. They're, they're well, anti-Semitic. Well, that's just nonsense. And the statistics prove that it's nonsense. And the right wing media. Um, yeah, but, but also just before just before you completely give me your answer. You're completely right. All progressive legislation in this country has been at the hand of the Labour Party. All mm. significant progressive yeah. legislation. You went back to the Cable Street riots back in the 1930s. The left mm. has a very strong tradition of which our mm. Jewish brethren have stood soldier to soldier with us, as they did in the East End of London, of back in the Cable Street riots. So we have a higher standard to maintain when it comes to any accusations of discrimination and racism wouldn't you say and so when you have somebody who has uh, um, uh, somebody who has a position of authority somebody like you an mp who has had this tradition of being anti-racist and when they're then the finger is pointed at them to say they were specifically anti-semitic it it behoves us to go above and beyond to prove that we're not, to be fulsome with our apologies. And one of the things which people say about you is that you haven't truly apologised. And what you have done is to say that people who have been the victims of this smear, oh, woe is them. Well, I've got nothing to apologise for. Uh, let's be clear about that. Um, as I've already made clear, I've, I've uh, fought racism. The party is an anti-racist uh, body. And just because people make accusations doesn't make it so. I mean, I can make all sorts of accusations. Just because you, somebody says something, doesn't make it reality. But, but surely you understand when people read that you say that allegations of anti-Semitism in the, in the Labour Party are proxy wars and bullshit, you can understand how that is perceived, can't you? Well, that was in relation to the attacks against Jeremy Corbyn. Of all the people to make such a grotesque accusation against Jeremy Corbyn, and this was uh, not long after I'd been re-elected in 2017. I lost my seat in 2015. I'd been the MP from 2010 to 2015 and lost by just 41 votes. And I did an interview with The Guardian. And uh, yes, people picked up on that. Um, but it's interesting they picked up on that point because the other issue I was raising was not just the accusations against Jeremy of anti-Semitism, but also the accusations about 
cozying up to terrorists and supporting despotic regimes and, and all the rest of it. These are absolute nonsense, and they have to be called out as nonsense. And I make no apology for calling it out as nonsense. It has to be so. Once you start giving uh, traction to this uh, nonsense and absurdities, you, you kind of give it a kind of legitimacy that it doesn't deserve. There is no depths to which they will not stoop. When the likes of, um, of David Cameron, who was the leader of the Tories at the time, was at university wearing a T-shirt saying, Hang Mandela, Jeremy Corbyn was standing outside picketing uh, South Africa House, uh, demanding uh, demanding Nelson Mandela's release. Because don't forget, you know, many of these absurd and ridiculous and outrageous accusations are, are coming from the people who are the, the most appalling racist, bigoted uh, individuals in the country. That's the sort of but, 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 but Chris, Chris, let's not talk about the Tories. You, you and I are in complete and utter agreement about the, uh, the amnesia that many people on the right have suffered mm. when when it comes to remembering uh, the 1980s et al uh, mm. of which the anti-apartheid movement was kind of key yeah. but you've, you you're railing against the elites but you've been suspended by the parliamentary labor party many people in that organization are not the elites of which you're railing against so let's just deal with that why is it that you've lost your high court case and there's the Absolutely. nec I Tell me about the High Court case. I took a case against the party, regrettably, not something I wanted to do. I've been a Labour Party member now, an active and, and loyal Labour Party member for nearly 44 years, serving the, the party throughout that entire period as an activist, as a councillor, as a, a leader of the council, as a member of, uh, of Parliament. And it's been an incredible privilege to do so. Mm -hmm. I've been appallingly uh, abused and smeared uh, by certain individuals. And I've been very badly treated, in my opinion, by, by, okay. the, uh, by, the, by the bureaucracy of the Labour Party. So in the end, okay. I know why, why, go why? And I won the High Court case against the suspension. It was ruled mm -hmm. unlawful. But the party bureaucrats had sought to uh, subvert any decision of the High Court. Well, in the first instance, trying to get it delayed. They tried on three separate occasions to get the High Court case delayed. I was calling for an early hearing in view of the possibility of, an, of a general election. And the argument that the party bureaucrats or their lawyers were putting was that uh, there was no evidence of an early election, and I was merely speculating. But obviously, as we now know, we're having an early election. In the end, after three separate hearings, a, uh, a senior judge ruled that there would have to be an early hearing, an expedited hearing. And within 36 hours, I received a third suspension from the Labour Party with even more preposterous accusations made against me, including, for example, um, uh, referring in a very polite uh, response to a woman who sent a highly abusive email to me after I'd appeared on, I think it was Sky TV, uh, where I'd criticised Margaret Hodge for trying to draw some equivalence between her receiving a letter from the Labour Party chiding her about her outburst against Jeremy Corbyn behind the Speaker's chair in the Chamber of the House of Commons and the appalling horrors of the Holocaust. And I said that, that that denigrated the memory of those who perished and were victims of the Holocaust. And this woman uh, took me to task for that and I, and in a very abusive email. And I responded to her. I could have just ignored it. Also, I responded with a very short uh, email saying, thank you, thank you for your email. Uh, could I refer you to this uh, video? You might like to uh, click on this link and, uh, uh, and listen to this individual's thoughts. I'd referred her to... 
a, a eminent Jewish academic called Norman Finkelstein, who had lost relatives in the Holocaust. And he was taking Margaret Hodge to task or attempting to draw some moral equivalence between what happened to his relatives and the treatment that she'd been subjected to in response to her outburst against Jeremy Corbyn. She received a letter. And, and he was very forthright in, in his criticisms of her. And he finished off by saying, get the hell out of the Labour Party, Dame Hodge. Now, that's been deemed to be uh, sufficient to merit a suspension. So, you know, there is all sorts of uh, slights of hand going on, and uh, it's very regrettable. Uh, but I'm determined to stand up for what's right, to stand up against racism, to stand up against those who've been falsely accused, and to stand up for the Labour Party's reputation and my own reputation. As someone who's okay, all right, and, and you, you're doing a very good job uh, combating those uh, those jibes today. Why is it that people have got it in for you in particular? You don't oh, deserve no, this. Wait, one second, Chris. One, one, one second, Chris. According to you, you you don't deserve these accusations. All you're doing is just defending the party that you love against accusations of uh, of anti-Semitism. Though many Jewish groups, uh, the Jewish group within the Labour Party, many of your colleagues in Parliament have said that you hold these views. Why is it that they've got it in for you? Well, I mean, you say the Jewish group inside the Labour Party, if you're referring to the Jewish Labour movement, you don't have to be a member of the Labour Party, nor do you have to be Jewish to be a member of the JLM. Uh, so you can draw your own conclusions from that. The Jewish Voice for Labour, by contrast, or the Jewish Socialist Group, they're very fulsome in their support. Look, there's a real, you know, it's a rearguard attempt, if you like, to try to stop uh, a socialist government coming to power. I mean, it seems that these people are bought into the neoliberal consensus and they've, they've used me. You're, you're very good, Chris. Chris, you're, you're very good in painting the picture that this is a smear. Who is smearing you in particular? Well, various people have, have smeared me. Uh, you know, well, you only have to look in, 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 the, in the media to see the sort of uh, nonsense, I mean, from, from Nick Robinson to a number of um, MPs who are supposed to be in the same party as I am. And I've always said that, look, as a Democrat, we should accept the will of the members. When Tony Blair, I didn't particularly like Tony Blair, it has to be said, I accepted the decision that was taken, albeit it wasn't on a one-member, one-vote basis either. But nevertheless, he was a democratically elected leader under the system that we had at that time. And I knuckled down and I fought for a Labour victory. I fought for the Labour Party. I'm sorry to say that there are a very tiny minority of people in, in privileged positions with, with access to a significant platform in the mainstream media who simply have been unwilling to accept democracy. That's all I've been arguing for. Uh, and, uh, you know, this fight will go on. But the overwhelming majority, I keep coming back to it, the overwhelming majority of the Labour Party membership support me. They don't support these handful of people who have all the, all, most of the access to the, to the media and get the big platform uh, through the broadcast media and uh, the uh, uh, print media. And indeed, some of those high-profile journalists, as I said, the likes of Nick Robinson, supposed to be an impartial BBC uh, correspondent, absolutely appalling with his, uh, some of his attacks, which he's levelled not just at me, but against uh, people like Jackie Walker, totally misrepresented uh, what she had actually said. And this is a black Jewish woman. Who I mentioned previously. Other, other people who have defended people like Cyril Chilson. His parents were um, survivors of the Holocaust, actually. They, they were in Auschwitz. People like Tony Greenstein, another Jewish member whose parents were uh, veterans. Okay. The All right. Let, let's try. The interested wing Jewish members of the party have been singled out in particular 
for attack. Do you not understand, though, that just your very tone leads people to think that you are insensitive to people who no. have been... <laughs> what a nonsense. What a balderdash. Uh, I'm, I'm, I robustly defend the party. I robustly defend my record. And I robustly defend anti-racists like Jackie Walker and the other people mm. who have met. All right, OK, Chris, <laughs> let, 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 let's, move, let's, let's move on. Hold on a Chris. You've got about how they feel. How do you think people like Jackie Walker feels? Tony mm. Greenstein? Cyril Chilson. I mean, this is outrageous. I've had people supporting me, people like Noam Chomsky, probably the, the preeminent progressive thinker anywhere in the world, a Jewish guy, as you will be well aware, I'm sure, and he's dismissed. Norman Finkelstein, similarly, dismissed. I mean, this is just incredible. And what I really object to is the one-eyed view, the one-eyed approach that we get from our um, unfit-for-purpose mainstream media who do not report accurately what is happening. They do not report the progressive Jewish voices who take mm -hmm. an entirely different view to the right-wing views which have been expressed by the likes of um, the JLM. But, Chris, you did lose your bid at the High Court to be reinstated into the Labour Party. You did lose that. And, and no. also, the fact of the matter, Chris... And, let, and let's, let's move on from this, because there is more to you than just this. But it behoves me to at least start our conversation with this. But you can rail against the liberal, you didn't use the word bourgeois, but let's say the liberal bourgeois media and the consensus. But your own colleagues in the party that you've been a member of for 40 years think that your presence at the moment is odious. There is no two ways about that. And not, and, and, and not all of them, and not all of them, can oh, you say, no. can you say are part of, part of the chattering classes and, and are duplicitous? Many of them who have worked with, one second, who have worked alongside you, believe that at the very best you have not been contrite when recordings of you have been heard on tape saying things and you've not you been contrite enough with your apologies well there's nothing to contrite about all i've said on tape in mm. turn is that the labor party has a proud record of fighting racism and has done but it's more. not all you said it's Hold not on. all you said well let me just carry on what else i said and it's done more than any other political party to drive out the scourge of anti-semitism that's the point mm -hmm. that i was making I went on to say, and this was what's been misrepresented because the mainstream media have suggested that I've said that the Labour Party's been too apologetic about anti-Semitism. I said nothing of the sort. In fact, quite the reverse of that, 180 degrees opposite of that. The point I was making is that we've done more than any other political party and that where we've been apologetic is we've been apologetic about our record in fighting anti-Semitism and right. standing up okay. for anti-Semitism. That's been misrepresented. That regrettably, some people who claim to be supporters of the Labour Party have used to attack me, to undermine me, and it's the self-same people who are attacking and undermining Jeremy Corbyn. But look, they're not the Labour Party. The Labour Party is its grassroots members, and there are well over 500,000, getting up for 600,000. The overwhelming majority of members of the party support me and want my reinstatement into the party. All the right. party okay. belongs, I've said, to the MPs and to the bureaucrats. They're in a privileged position to work for and to be elected to represent the Labour Party and the and Labour supporters and, and the public at large. And their role is to be the servant of the movement. 
But they've got they've got the whole power relationship the wrong way around. And because I'm someone who's, who's very strong advocate of democracy, they've, they've used dirty, despicable tactics to try and undermine and smear okay. me. Okay, you, you've you've been smeared. Um, let's move on. After December the twelfth, there will be a new parliament in the United mm. Kingdom. Will it be the last parliament that will see Scotland as a constituent part of it? That's a possibility. I would hope that wouldn't happen. But uh, I mean, I think. You know, if there is a desire for the Scottish people within the Scottish people to to leave the European uh, to leave the uh, United Kingdom, then that is a possibility. I'm not sure necessarily though it will it will happen. I mean, the, the the high watermark for nationalism, I think, was in 2014, and that referendum uh, came with the outcome that it did, and uh, the majority voted to to remain. But I think with a Labour government coming into office. Uh, with a progressive socialist programme, I think what the Scots particularly object to is they've um, consistently voted Labour and now obviously SNP, but certainly voted for, for parties that have a more progressive social policy perspective than the Tories do, and yet they've been subjected to Tory rule, uh, you know, against the wishes of the majority of the, the Scottish people. And I think some see you know, out of desperation, really, the, 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 the need to, you know, move away from that. And, of course, under the new Labour era as well, that bought into the whole neoliberal economic consensus, you know, enamoured of that. And, and I think we want to see something different. And that's probably what's driving the desire for um, uh, independence. But I think with a, with a you know, progressive socialist uh, government in, in office, uh, bringing forward uh, policies which would address inequality and eliminate, and I think we could, in a five-year term, I think we should be committing, in fact, to eliminating poverty altogether. I know we talked about, and Jeremy's very clearly said that we should, you know, eradicate street homelessness, and absolutely we should be doing that in the fifth biggest economy in the world. But I think we should be going further. We shouldn't just be talking about, you know, eradicating street homelessness. We should be saying we will eradicate poverty in Britain, and we'll do that within a five-year term of a Labour uh, government. And I do think it's possible. It's anything's possible with, with political will. And, uh, you know, through redistribution, uh, investing in high quality public services and making sure, you know, the technology is our servant, not our master. And uh, all these things, you know, putting to, together and the fact that we have our own sovereign currency gives us enormous flexibility. And to really turn this country around and to, you know, reduce the working week. I mean, let's remember John Maynard Keynes made a speech in 1930. He talked about his grandchildren only working a 15-hour week. He fully predicted that would be what happened. But, of course, we've reached that time and, uh, you know, people are working longer than they've ever done. And we've got, you know, people in in-work poverty, precarious employment is now endemic throughout the, the land. And, you know, this is, we need a, a radical rethink of the way this economy is working. We need good quality jobs. We need investment in manufacturing, although that won't be the saviour on its own. But we need good quality, uh, high quality, world-class public services. That will generate uh, a lot more uh, employment as well. We need investment in infrastructure, in renewable energy to address the biggest challenge facing humanity, and that is the, the climate crisis. So, you know, there's lots of things that we can and need to do that will uh, not only address, you know, the inequality and, and the climate crisis confronting Britain and the world, but will actually be, you know, economically beneficial for everybody. And uh, I think, as I say, with, with, a, with a progressive socialist government, with that kind of policy agenda going forward, I don't think that the Scots would be as inclined to want to then 
leave the United Kingdom because it would be a, a United Kingdom that was at ease with itself, that was generally working in the interests of the vast majority of the public that live here. But the, the situation in Northern Ireland, by the way, is a very masterful answer. And I like the way that you tied it up back at the end with the original question, even though you went on so, somewhat of a, of a discourse in the middle. So uh, you very much are a politician, sir. So you tied it up in the end. Let's say that uh, Boris Johnson is going to helm the next government, mm. which um, is a distinct possibility. That's going to see the end of Scotland, isn't it? Because uh, one of the key things that unionists have said, I mean, unionists in, in the widest sense, is that Scotland can't be treated any different from the United Kingdom. The SNP has this will, this desire to be still be part of Europe. Overwhelmingly, the Scots voted to remain. And then they're going to be shackled by this agreement, which says that regulatory alignment stops in the Irish Sea. So Northern Ireland is still some quasi part of, of, of the EU. Um, that is going to rankle with the Scots completely, isn't it? And the clamour for a second referendum vote on Scottish independence is going to be utterly, utterly, utterly too much for that Conservative-led Brexit government to quell. So is what you're saying then, sir, the only way we can save the United Kingdom is by having a Labour-led Remain government? Well, I think a Labour-led government, certainly a committed socialism, is, is the way to maintain the union, to maintain the United Kingdom. Certainly there would be much greater challenges facing the country, I think, and the prospect of, of independence for Scotland would, I think, be much stronger if the, the Tories were to win under uh, Boris Johnson. But uh, you've talked about, uh, you know, a Labour uh, Remain government. I, I mean, I'm not, I don't support, uh, you know, Labour putting forward a, a Remain proposition, actually. Even I say that as somebody who, who campaigned for Remain in the referendum. In fact, nobody in my city, I wasn't a Member of Parliament at that time, but literally nobody in, in my city in Derby campaigned more than I did to try to secure a Remain vote. I was out literally every night knocking on doors. And when I wasn't knocking on doors, I was speaking to public meetings across the region. And when I wasn't speaking at, re uh, at meetings in the region and knocking on doors, at the weekends I was organising street stalls to try and get that message out of Remain and reform the European Union. Because the European Union is far from perfect. At the end of the day, it's a capitalist club. Let's remember that. And it promotes neoliberalism. It's, if you like, socialism for the elites and the wealthy corporations. It hasn't been, isn't sufficiently a social Europe. And it isn't just in Britain where there's dissatisfaction with the European Union. There's dissatisfaction in virtually every country across the EU. And unless it does reform, and there's, there's no indication that, it, that it's interested in reforming in the interests of people rather than corporations and privatisation and so on, then I don't think that the European Union has a, has a long and healthy future in any event. But look, Brexit is a sideshow in many respects. The issue is, mm -hmm. and obviously this will be determined by you know who wins the wins wins power. But whoever wins, whether we're in or out of the European Union, whether we leave with or without a deal, the key issue is who's got the keys to ten Downing Street. Who is in the executive? You know who's running the country? Who's running the government? And if the Tories continue, then inequality will continue to get worse. Public services will continue to dwindle and be used as a cash cow for uh, corporations. Privatisation will, will extend still further. Poverty will, will continue to rise. And these are just facts. We only have to look at the, the history of it. Um, and that's why the alternative is so crucial. And with our own sovereign currency, with our own central bank, literally money is no option. Money is no option. 
it's, it's not it's not it's, 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 there's no barrier we you know we we, we don't have the constraints that uh, countries that are in the eurozone have for example we have our own central bank so we can create the money that, that, that's required that the you make a really interesting point of us having our own sovereign currency and we absolutely yeah. do basically all those money markets are potentially running scared we're going to ramp up our debt aren't you this is the contrary argument so tell tell me i'm wrong the argument you know look henry ford once said if the public understood the banking system and the banking and the monetary system there'd be a revolution by tomorrow morning we've been conned for years you know, as I've already said, you know, money is no object. I think I may have said money is no option before. That's what I meant to say, money is no object. Um, and uh, with our own sovereign currency, because we can just create the money, as we did uh, in, in, you know, in, in the crisis of capitalism that saw the, the crash in 2008. But on the, on the other side, that's not to just sort of say you can just spend money willy-nilly. There is constraints. There are constraints. Those constraints are the capacity in the economy. How much unemployed labour do you have, for example? How much you know, natural resources are, are, are available to you uh, for sale in pounds sterling? Now, the issue isn't right. about, you know, it's not about, you know... Chris, uh, we're, we're in broad agreement. We're, we're, in, we're in broad <laughs> agreement. It's, it's just that we have to be careful, us people on the left, with, with the language that we use when it comes to saying that money is absolutely no object because capital markets then will will take flight. They'll start selling the pound. But one second, one, one second, one second. Because I want to move kind of off from that, because we're in broad agreement. We're in broad agreement that uh, as someone who is a, a proud Brummy, as I am, one of the things which my city has been denied is the aspiration of labour for the last 50 years. And I mean labour in, in, in the working sense. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a real stark statistic that up until the late 1960s, in terms of household income, Birmingham was richer than London. It's a mm. shocking statistic. And it's only yeah. the 1980s that London then massively forges ahead. And that is emblematic of deregulation. And then the lopsided nature that the uh, UK economy has then ate since. Now, gone are the days when you had regional powerhouses of note, like your Liverpools, your Manchesters, your Newcastles, your Birminghams, your Leeds, which meant that the UK, Britain, had a balanced economy. The 1980s, Thatcher destroyed all of that. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., how would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How can the Labour Party get its message to working-class youth? And I'm going to be quite specific. White working-class youth and young adults in the depressed bits of England and Britain, where they have a countervailing narrative, which is one about identity, which is people that don't look like you, don't sound like you, maybe worship in a different way from you, they are the problem. How can the Labour Party go into Rochdale, go into Rotherham and incite those people about its message because many of them will say the Labour Party has failed them successively for generations of slavishly voted Labour they've got nothing to show for it well I I understand that that scepticism and and in fact I share it Uh, I think the Labour Party or the Labour governments anyway did let down communities I mean we did some decent things under under Tony Blair but we bought into the neoliberal consensus that's been the problem and the deregulated uh, system that goes with that and the, that saw the offshoring of uh, good quality jobs to low wage economies. It saw inequality continuing to rise. It saw the fruits of the economy, which I've already said is the fifth biggest in the world, actually being unevenly distributed. And so inequality has continued to get to get worse. We've got to give a message of hope. Uh, and I think some of the kind of bread and butter specific things that we've talked about is you know, creating decent jobs for people, secure jobs for people, ensuring that young people are not discriminated against in terms of the minimum wage and having a much higher minimum wage. We've talked about £10. I think it should be higher higher than, than that as well. But I think that's where a starting point, and that would apply to young people as well. We've talked about bringing about educational maintenance allowances to allow young working class people to, you know, stay on in, 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 um, in further education and then to be able to then take advantage of potentially higher education if they want to go down that route and we've said that we will scrap tuition fees and that I think will obviously also be beneficial to predominantly young people, not exclusively young people. But I think again, we should be going further than that. We should be buying out the historic student loan book as well so that we can, if you like, abolish the historic loan that uh, loans that many young people, uh, you know, have gone into work now, left university, are still saddled with. But I think where we also need to be focused on is, is things like housing and we've, we've made that clear as well that would be a huge house building program and I think back to my youth as a young man training as a bricklayer and I was a 19 year old apprentice bricklayer I often give this anecdote when I'm speaking at different meetings because a lot of young people find it very hard to believe as a 19 year old apprentice me and my girlfriend we saved up on our own for a year my parents were were just working class so we didn't we didn't, we didn't benefit from the bank of mum and dad my dad was a uh, uh, well by that time he was a 
a porter at the hospital, local hospital. But before that, he'd been a, in the building trade like me as a plasterer. My mother worked in a, in a factory. But my other girlfriend, and she was a telephonist at the city council. I was a, an apprentice bricklayer. And we saved up enough money after a year, and we bought a brand-new three-bedroom, semi-detached house backing onto a waterfront in a desirable village eight miles south of Derby that was only three times what I was earning as an apprentice bricklayer. Today, that's impossible. And, in fact, I looked on Zoopla a few years ago, and it, the last time that house that we bought for £10,000 in 1976 was sold for about £300,000. And that is the equivalent, or was the equivalent at that time, of about 30 times what an apprentice, 19-year-old apprentice bricklayer could earn. So we've got to get back to the an accessible um, uh, housing system where we're building the council houses that people need and we're building good quality, decent council houses as well with decent space standards built to eco-house standards as well. We need to be regulating the private rented sector as well and we, we need to be scrapping the, the, the cap on the support that uh, goes to people who are on low incomes and are forced to you know, claim for, for housing benefit. But ultimately, we need to be getting to a place where people are earning enough money so that they have the, to go through the indignity of having to claim some means to benefit to help to pay their rent. That would be achieved by, as I've said, deregulating, sorry, regulating the private rental sector, building the council houses, and building more affordable we're, we're, homes. Chris, and well. Chris, All those things are relevant to young people as well. Chris, and, we're and, in violent and, agreement. We're, we're in violent agreement here. But that's not the duration of five years. Initially, you said five years wouldn't get rid of poverty. I don't know if that's achievable within five years, but what oh, you're proposing no, there. It is absolutely achievable. Look, if you'd have said to Keir Hardy when we founded the Labour Party and, uh, and, and Richard Bell, who was the other Labour MP elected on that in that same election in 1900 in Derby, incidentally, actually, the two uh, Labour MPs, first one in England was, was in Derby. So I'm standing on the shoulder of giants here. If you'd have said to them within, uh, you know, one or one and a half generations, we'd have a health service free at the point of delivery, that we'd have a social security system that was fit for purpose and provided a safety net for people, that we'd have good quality, affordable, decent, secure public sector homes available for the masses and an increasing take-home pay and a bigger and bigger proportion of national income going to workers as happened from 45 through to the late 1970s. We'd have said, well, that's great, but it's probably a bit of a pipe dream. I'm not sure we can achieve it so quickly. We did it. We did it. Don't forget that Attlee government. And, and again, even there, I think it could have been slightly more radical, but he did some amazing things at a time when the country was broke. At a time we'd just come out through through the Second World War. The debt to GDP ratio was over 250 percent. And we built the health service. We created the, the, the welfare state. We built a million homes. We maintained full employment and we set in train an economic system that ensured that a bigger and bigger proportion of the national income went to workers. Every single year, we up to the point in 1976, I'll give myself as a personal example, working class people like me and my girlfriend were able to aspire to buy a new home. Chris, a- um, I use a very similar example to illustrate the point of how incomes have, relatively speaking, completely and utterly diminished since the 1980s. My father, working class Jamaican immigrant from Jamaica, mm-hmm. could actually buy his own house what, some seven years after coming to the country uh, in in 1969. And, you know, he could, in effect, almost buy cash. You know, he saved Mm -hmm. up the money. And and he's a bus driver. So I I completely and utterly agree with you. The one thing I would say uh, about your analogy of the Apley government, at first off, you started talking about 
Keir Hardy. And then mm. you said it was a generation and a half uh, from mm. 1900, from the, the, the founder mm. of the Independent Labour Party, then to mm. the Atlee government. Well, that's 45 years. So it's two, mm. two generations, let's say. Mm. And if you're proposing that in a five-year period, so what, 2024, mm. um, a bus driver in Derby or Doncaster would be able to buy a two-bedroom house we'll need a catastrophic crash of house prices wouldn't we it's not just it's, one second one second it's not just a house building program for social housing that's not going to happen without massive uh, financial dislocation of one of the key areas of which the middle classes actually derive their wealth mm-hmm. from which is their property that's not a five-year period however we need to build houses then the one thing that i absolutely recognize to my shame, uh, being somebody who travels a lot, uh, I spend a lot of my time in the United States and people who listen to my mm-hmm. show will know what I'm about to say. Um, when I first went to San Francisco in uh, 2014, I was appalled and horrified by the, the, the amount of people who are homeless. There are, there mm-hmm. are tents under freeways in San Francisco and I could hold up good old Blighty as being somewhere which is far from perfect mm-hmm. But we didn't treat our homeless in such a way. Every time I now get off the airport and I go into central Birmingham, I now see the odd tent. And this is totally shocking for me. Mm. So you started one of your answers by saying that homelessness, that we need to uh, radically address this problem. And we absolutely Mm. do because it's emblematic of the disparity of incomes, of the lack of affordable homes. And it should shame us. It should shame every british person regardless of your political stripes that adults are left to fend for themselves and to sleep on concrete streets there's no need for it as you said whether we're the fifth sixth or seventh richest economy in the world that is somewhat debatable whether we're fifth sixth or seventh but we're up there uh we have the financial means to build houses and to help give everybody a more level quality of life for the generations going forward. You're going to win your seat, aren't you? Well, I'm hoping so, obviously. I mean, you know, I want to do that. Can I just sort of say quickly, say GDP, by the way, gross domestic product, is a very, very poor, blunt instrument to measure economic success. I mean, I wouldn't be too troubled if the, if the economy did diminish a little bit in size. I don't think it would, though, with the sort of programme we're talking about. But the key issue is redistribution. If we can lift the living standards of the 99%, which I think we can, mm. And, you know, and, and, and your analogy is saying you couldn't do this in five years. I disagree. I think you absolutely could. And it's not just about dealing with housing. Obviously, you can't, I mean, in terms of addressing the, the housing crisis, that might take a little bit longer. I talked about eliminating poverty, a big house building program. We can't automatically turn the, turn the tap on trade. We've got to train people. It took me four years to train as a bricklayer, for example. So, so that will take time, but you can, you can regulate the, the, uh, the private rented sector to give people protection and, and lower uh, rents. You can also make sure that you know people start getting a bigger share of the of this of the the wealth of the of the nation. So you lift people's incomes. I'm not talking about the catastrophic reduction in in house prices because that would obviously be very destabilising. Um, so I think there are absolutely things that can be done, and we also need mm. a compassionate social security system. But yes, now I'm hoping that I will win my seat. It's you know it's a marginal seat, but I mean I won it in 2010 by 613. It's the place where I was born and where I grew up. In, in Derby North, fully enough, I live 100 yards from where I was born, as it happens. But anyway, I lost it by 41 votes in 2015, then won it back by 2015 votes in 2017. We increased the turnout uh, substantially. 
We increased the Labour vote by around 8,000 at the last election. And my ambition, if you like, is that we've got to find a way as a Labour Party of reaching into the parts, you know, people feel politics has passed them by, that they don't feel that the Labour Party or any political party, the politics just doesn't work for them. And uh, I want to find a way of doing politics with people, not to people. I think democracy is the key to achieving that. And that's why I want to do more to democratise labour, do more to ensure then that we can then democratise the economy, build a network of worker cooperatives, bring the you know the utilities and the railways and so on into public ownership, but do it in a way where it's not top-down, stated approach, where people, local people, have a real stake in it. Because when the Tories were were selling off our national assets back in the 1980s, and people like me were arguing to people, look, you already own the the gas and the electricity. People didn't feel like they did because they were run by remote bureaucrats. We've got to change that. We need to change that. And as I say, we need to ensure that. When companies are being flogged off, and we, we had a manifesto commitment last time on this, and I want us to go further, uh, where a company was being sold, we we're going to give the workers the first right of refusal to buy it out. I would extend that to say where a company is being relocated to offshore, some offshore location where they can manufacture at a cheaper cost, I'll give the workers the right to buy the company in those circumstances as well. And we'll provide the resources for that through the National Investment Bank. And, uh, you know, we create an economic virtuous circle by doing these sorts of measures. Because when you put money into the pockets of ordinary working class people, they tend to spend it in the local economy, which helps to go on then to sustain other jobs because uh, it takes you know, more workers to provide those um, those uh, goods and services that you know, the people with the greatest spending power. Um, Chris, when it comes to redistribution of wealth, you might be slightly to the left of me, but we are kind of almost in lockstep. So I appreciate your vision. And uh, I, I kind of agree with it. Don't the NEC convene on Tuesday to discuss what's going to happen with Wednesday, you? Next week. Wednesday. Yeah. Um, what happens if they say nay and uh, you're, you're not a member of the Labour Party come Wednesday? Well, it wouldn't be that I wouldn't be a member of the Labour Party. It would be just that the suspension would continue and I wouldn't have been endorsed as the, uh, as the candidate. Uh, but I'm not really contemplating at the moment. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful and uh, I believe I'm absolutely the best person to win the seat for, for Labour. As I've said, I'm a, I'm a local person, born and bred in Derby, lived here in and around Derby all my life. I live 100 yards from where I was born. I've, I've been active working in the community for over 35 years before I was a councillor in Derby. I was a welfare rights officer. And, you know, we have a, an office at the moment right in the city centre. I was determined to make sure that we were as accessible as possible to local people so that my office is open. It's an open-door policy. I've got a great team of people working here uh, doing casework for people. People can come and see us anytime, Monday to Friday from 10 a.m. till 6 p.m. I always say we, we give everybody 100%. We don't take no for an answer. We're remorseless in actually you know, fighting for the local people. I believe I've got a, you know, a good reputation. I am somebody who's committed to Derby. I'm committed to social justice. I'm committed to you know, socialism. And to fighting, you know, for for the underdog, if you like, um, fighting certainly for my class. Chris, uh, Chris, you um, are so clear on your what you perceive the battle lines for social justice, for social equality, and for redistribution of wealth. You're incredibly clear with your passion for the Labour Party. It's a shame that you're not equally as clear with your condemnation of some of your past comments and how they've been perceived. Jewish members of the Labour Party have 
been shocked, disappointed, upset, and have left the party because of this row about anti-Semitism. The one thing which you can't step away from absolutely is that, that you have, wittingly or not, contributed to a narrative whereby people outside of the Labour Party that want to do it ill can say and have said anti-Semitism is rife in the Labour Party. And it's a shame that you're not clear clear enough on that, that you do internalise this and you you kind of flip and say that people are attacking you, attacking you, attacking you. And no doubt that they are, sir, right? But many of them would say with very good reason. So here's your right of reply. I've loved having you on the show. Hopefully we can get you on the show again. There's your right reply and we'll sign off. Thanks very much indeed. Well, look, I would reply with a quote from a, uh, a, an iconic civil rights leader, Malcolm X. He once said that if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you loving the oppressors and uh, hating the people being oppressed. And, and I think we have a, an analogy here where people who are the ones who fight racism are the ones that are being demonised and, and, and some of the people who hold the bigoted views and the, uh, and the right-wing views are the ones that are being venerated. And I think people just need to look very carefully at what's being said, who's saying it, uh, actually examine what I've said and what other people have said, what Jeremy Corbyn has said, and just you know think, who is, who is actually telling the truth here? Um, is it me or is it them? I've been, as I say, incredibly misrepresented. I can't apologise for something I've not done. And I think it's important. This is where I think we've, where, where the party's gone wrong, actually. Um, we've, we've allowed a narrative to take hold, which is entirely unjustified. We've got the far right on the rise in this country, the likes of Tommy Robinson. It's, I never thought I'd see the day again when thousands of fascists would be marching on the street. We have to reach out. We have to fight the scourge of fascism. Uh, and that means uniting. That means inspiring uh, all communities uh, and working class communities who are being ruthlessly targeted by the likes of Toby Robinson and are othering, um, you know, communities like, you know, migrant communities and so on. Uh, and look, as uh, Joe Cotton said, there's more that unites us than, than divides us. And all I would say is let, let's, let's link arms together and fight in solidarity against all forms of discrimination and uh, bigotry. Let's work together to fight anti-Semitism, to fight Islamophobia, to fight racism, to fight sexism, to fight all forms of bigotry. We only do that by standing together in solidarity. Solidarity is the key. The old labor movement maxim that unity unity is strength couldn't be more apposite than now. Let's stand together and fight for a decent, fair, caring society where everybody has a stake in society and where we don't see people sleeping and dying on our streets, and where people can walk safely down the street, where all all communities respect and cherish each other. If we do that, I'm sure we can build the better world that we all aspire to. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mid-Atlantic. This has been another one of our departures. We haven't had our two regular pundits, one in the US and one in the UK, to discuss UK and US politics. But we decided to speak to MP Chris Williamson, who has been charged as being one of the people who have brought the stain of anti-Semitism to the heart of the Labour Party. You heard his uh, heard his defence. It's for you to decide whether you think that is just. But Chris, we'd like to uh, we'd like to, again thank you for coming on to Mid Atlantic, and uh, we'll look with interest to see what happens next Wednesday at the NEC meeting. But then also. If you do stand at the next general election, exactly if you'll be returned as the MP for Derby North. 
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.